Good day, everyone, and welcome to the 50 Years Ago in Hockey podcast, and this is episode number 88. Each week, right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take you back in time 50 years and we report on all the hockey news exactly as it was reported by some of the greatest sports sports writers of all time 50 years ago. This week, we are looking at June 28th to July 4th, 1971. DraftKings is America's top-rated sportsbook. Uh, DraftKings Sportsbook is just the the greatest uh, sportsbook that there is out there. It's easy to navigate. It has plenty of instructions for new bettors and nearly limitless ways to get in on all the action. Uh, People I know have been loving DraftKings Sportsbook, and I know that you will too. Listen to this great offer. DraftKings Sportsbook is putting you courtside with a chance to turn $1 into $100 in site credits. That's right. Pick any basketball team that's still in contention, bet a dollar, and if that team wins, you get $100 in site credits. Don't forget, DraftKings Sportsbook also offers great odds and promotions on baseball, hockey, and so much more all week long. DraftKings is safe, secure, and reliable, so you can deposit and withdraw your funds at your convenience. Download the top-rated DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use promo code THPN, that's THPN for the Hockey Podcast Network when you sign up to turn $1 into $100 in free credits. Bet on the basketball team of your choice to win their next game, and if they do, you'll claim $100 in free credits. That's promo code THPN for a limited time only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only, new customers only, wager paid out and site credits and restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com for all the details. Of course, in addition to DraftKings, don't forget our other sponsors. Uh, Newspapers.com is the world's largest online newspaper archive, and without their support, we couldn't do what we do here. And of course, the Breakwall Brewing Company, now open in their patio in Port Colborne, Ontario, just steps from the Welland Canal and a couple of blocks from Lake Erie. Uh, It's a great place. If any of our folks get into the southern Ontario area, please look me up and we'll have a beer and a burger at the Breakwall. So a little bit of personal news here. We are now all moved into our uh, new home in back in Port Coburn, Ontario. We're so happy to be here. The renovations to the home office are just about complete. We got a few more things uh, to uh, complete here and we'll get the sound just about right. It's getting better all the time we think but we're happy to be back in Port Coburn and uh, we'll be having lots of hockey news for you this summer. Uh, To our Patreon folks uh we've been a bit remiss in getting shows out to you the last few weeks while we completed this move but we have some really interesting stuff in the hopper and we'll be getting that out in the coming days
Well, 50 years ago this week, uh, June was moving into July and summer was moving from early summer to midsummer. It was warm, it was hot, but you know what? There was still some hockey news being made and we've got a bit for you this week. Our first report is going to concern the National Hockey League Players Association annual golf tournament. It was held in Woodbridge, Ontario as we went into this week because it was a bit delayed by rain as we'll uh, examine in this report by Jack Marks of the Toronto Globe and Mail. We ding-donged him to death. That was Derek Sanderson's description of the victory he and his partner, Boston Bruins teammate Eddie Johnson, scored in the American Airlines abbreviated National Hockey League Players Association Best Ball Golf Tournament at the Board of Trade Country Club this past weekend. The combination carded two round scores of 61-64 for a 15 under par total of 125 and a two-stroke win over Stan Makita and Jim Pappen of the Chicago Blackhawks. The New York Rangers twosome of defenseman Brad Park and left winger Dave Ballone combined for a 128 after staggering out of a three-way tie for first place on Saturday. Friday's first round was washed out by electrical storms, so tournament officials cut the third annual uh, tourney to a 36-hole contest. Detroit Red Wing defenseman Gary Bergman won the Ford Pinto for the shot closest to the uh, cup on the 149-yard 16th hole, and his playing partner, Frank Mahovlich, now of the Montreal Canadiens, won the car last year after they combined to win the 1970 championship. They get a Pinto for winning, winning this in the next few years, the Pinto would undergo some very uh, negative publicity, but it was a car, and two hockey players won it. Nothing wrong with that. There was a tie for low score over the 36 holes. Dale Talon of the Vancouver Canucks had rounds of 73 and 69 for a 132 total, but golf pro Andy Bathgate caught him yesterday with a 68. He shot a 74 in the first round. Talon defeated Bathgate on the playoff to win a set of golf clubs. Talon is, of course, the former Canadian junior golf champion. Although Eddie Johnson and Sanderson were eligible for the $5,000 first prize of the fifteen grand put up by American Airlines, Johnson had signed away his right to the money before things even started. Eddie is a five-handicap golfer, and with invitations to play in most of the top-run Pro-Am Invitational tournaments in the United States and an amateur competitor in New England tournaments, Eddie had no desire to take the prize money. But, he said, this is the best Pro-Am tournament in which I've ever played. Eddie Johnson, uh, as you know, is the Bruins player representative on the NHL Players Association, is also the chairman of the handicap committee for this tournament. After the first round, when his partner Sanderson shot a 77, Johnson cut him from a 14 handicap to a 10. Derek may have been sandbagging a few people there. Eddie said, if I had another round to go, I'd have had to cut him again, he said, after realizing that Derek had shot another 77 in the second 18. Sanderson was a little glib about his share of the uh, $5,000 first prize, $2,500. 
uh, Derek's, uh, when asked about the money, he said, well, we lost the Stanley Cup. I need the money. I don't know what I'm going to do with it until I talk to my attorney in the morning. One thing, though, I knew we were going to win it a month ago as soon as I find out that EJ and I were paired. And by the way, Makita and Pappen also rejected the $3,000, which they won for finishing in second place. They sidetracked their money into the Rotary Club of Toronto Charity for Crippled Children and the Canadian Olympic Association's Youth Development Programs and Good On Them. Of course, you get this many hockey people together. There are notes coming out of the the entire uh, the entire tournament, and so a smart reporter would keep his eyes and ears open for people gathering in scrums and maybe try and pick up a few tidbits. One such tidbit was uh, Bob Nevin, the former Maple Leaf and now former Ranger. He was still shaken after being traded by the Rangers to the Minnesota North Stars. At the tournament, he said that he had been given absolutely no reason for being traded. Bob talked to Milt Dunnell, the Toronto Star, and he said uh, he had no no reason, no explanation at all. He said, I went to see M.L. Francis, who is the general manager and coach of the Rangers, before I left New York. Bob said Francis told him uh, that he was going to thank him for his services with the New York club, and he wanted to wish him luck. And that was all the cat said to the captain of the Rangers that he traded away. The Boston Bruins announced a signing of two players during the tournament. They are veteran left-winger Johnny Busick and youngish defenseman Rick Smith. They'll both be with the Bruins next season. Busick's now 36. He's ready for his 17th NHL season, his 15th with the Bruins. If you remember, Johnny started his career with the Detroit Red Wings and was traded to the Bruins in exchange for Terry Sawchuk. Rick Smith will be 23, actually turned 23 this week. This is his fourth Boston contract, and then he's leaving for Kingston, Ontario, where he's going to attend Queen's University for the summer in furthering his education. Here's some news on one of the American Hockey League's newest teams, the Boston Braves. Because of the great demand for season tickets, the Braves management announced that they have moved up the closing date for accepting season applications from September 10th to July 1. No applications for season tickets at Boston Garden will be accepted after that date. Now, more than 7,000 tickets have already been sold on a season basis, and the supply of top price $4 seats under the season ticket plan has been completely exhausted for the American Hockey League Club's first season. The cutoff date was moved ahead to provide a sufficient number of tickets for public sale on game days. If you're a sports fan and who isn't who's listening to this podcast, you're always looking for uh, the next big thing. Well, the next big thing in hockey these days is said to be the new Montreal Canadian superstar in waiting, young Guy Lafleur, who was, of course, the first overall pick in the recent National Hockey League amateur draft. The present big thing, as everyone knows, is Bobby Orr. 
And uh, Bobby did attend the end of the golf tournament. He didn't play the whole thing. He had a, a death in the family. His grandfather had passed away, but he was there for the end. And, of course, Bobby was asked a lot of questions, and one of them was if he had any advice for young Guy Lafleur as he negotiates his first National Hockey League contract with the Canadians. Well, Bobby had just four little words to uh, give to Guy when they two met up this weekend at the tournament. The four words, get a good lawyer. Lafleur, uh, at this point in time, picked first in that draft, as we mentioned. He scored more than 130 goals with Quebec of the uh, Quebec Junior A-League last season. And at this point in time, he was negotiating a ton contract, as we mentioned. And Jerry Patterson, a well-known Montreal sports representative, was handling negotiations for him. Or himself at this time, by the way, was negotiating what is believed to be a multi-year contract with the Bruins. Off and on since back in, in March, uh, the reports that Orr had signed a five-year deal. But as of this time, Bobby had not yet signed the much-anticipated contract that everybody thinks he's going to. Another question that was asked of Orr this weekend, and remember, he, shot, he showed up unexpectedly. He had initially, initially bowed out because of the death in the family, but he managed to get there Sunday. Well, he was asked to comment on National Hockey League President Clarence Campbell's statement last week that the Bruins couldn't afford the team it had without selling off some of its stars, such as Phil Esposito. Bobby said, I don't think the league president should be saying stuff like that. I think the Bruins still have a few bucks. Bobby was also asked what his contract is calling for, and he said, all, all I can say is, I'm asking for what I'm worth. If you've been following us the past uh, few weeks, then you know that we've been reporting on some financial woes by the principal owners of the Vancouver Canucks, a company called Metacor based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Well, there were rumors swirling about the future of the team, and the vice president of Metacor, Lyman Walters, came out early this week and said that the Vancouver Canucks are not for sale and never have been for sale, but he stopped short of saying they never will be for sale. Local radio reports in Vancouver had Metacor dealing with Canadian interests to sell off control of the NHL team. Many people, both Canadians and Americans, have expressed an interest in buying the club, Walters said in a long-distance interview from Minneapolis with Hal Sigurdsson of the Vancouver Sun. But, Walters says, we've never had any intention of selling the team and we still don't have that intention. Now, the rumors are sparked by the fact that Capazzi Enterprises Limited of Vancouver currently holds a first mortgage on Metacore's shares in Northwest Sports, which is the company that actually uh, runs the Canucks. The Capazzi family-owned firm gained the position as a result of a $3.6 million loan to Metacore, who got in this trouble when they failed to make a $3.5 million loan payment. In addition to the financial woes of the American owners of the Canucks, the team itself is the subject of two legal actions in British Columbia Supreme Court. Uncle Ben's Tartan Holdings Limited 
claims $675,000 in an action filed against Northwest Sports Enterprises Limited. And the Canucks, of course, as we mentioned, are controlled by Northwest Sports. Tartan is asking for cancellation of an agreement made last year in which it claims it agreed to purchase 3,000 units each containing a series of A debenture and 15 common shares of the capital stock of Northwest offered in a prospectus dated November 13, 1970. In the second suit, Herbert Pinder Jr. of Saskatchewan, he's a player who uh, was contracted to the Canucks, he is claiming $7,141 for an alleged breach of contract between himself and the Vancouver Hockey Club. Here's a nice bit of news for a really good guy. Former National Hockey League Ironman Johnny Wilson has a new gig and he hopes it leads to an eventual National Hockey League head coaching post. Johnny Wilson has a record, uh, had the record of 580 consecutive games played in the NHL in the late 50s, early 60s. And he was named this week the coach of the Tidewater Wings, which is Detroit's new entry in the American Hockey League and will be the Red Wings' number one farm club. Johnny played 11 years in the National Hockey League, six with the Red Wings, two with Chicago, and split the remaining three seasons between the Maple Leafs and the Rangers before he retired in 1962. His record of consecutive games started with 30 at the tail end of the 1951-52 season, followed by 560 more, or eight full 70-game seasons. Prior to accepting the Tidewater assignment, Johnny coached the Springfield Kings of the American Hockey League as they captured the Calder Cup emblematic of the American Hockey League supremacy this past spring. So the Red Wings are hiring a winner to develop their young players in the AHL. A bit of news from the social pages uh, around the NHL. It's Gordon Ritz, uh, 44 years old. He's one of the owners of the Minnesota North Stars hockey team. He has been divorced from his wife, Margot Ann Larson Ritz, who's 41. The divorce settlement gave custody of the couple's three children to Mrs. Ritz with Ritz to pay her $10,000 a year for their support. Plus, Ritz has to pay educational expenses throughout the kids' college years. The settlement also provided for an increase in support payments if his income rises and Mrs. Ritz, daughter of Roy E. Larson, vice chairman of Time magazine, by the way, will also re uh, receive a substantial alimony payment. Ah, the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Hey, that sounds like a name for... Uh good TV show. I'm just wondering whether all this uh, marital discord and the fin accompanying financial problems will have any effect on the North Stars franchise. They do well at the gate. They should be okay, but uh, uh, this, the franchise could have some shaky things going on in the background that we don't know about. 
There have been stories in Detroit, everybody's heard them, that Red Wing season ticket subscribers have been canceling their tickets by the dozens in protest over the way that General Manager Ned Harkness is running, or some would say ruining, this franchise. Well, Lincoln Cavallari, who is the building manager of the Olympia Arena, uh, wanted to set things straight into what's really going on, at least the version of the truth given by the Red Wings. Cavallari says that while this is true that some folks are signing back their tickets, it is being more than offset by a demand from others who are interested in buying season tickets to the Red Wings for the very first time. Cavallari said that the Red Wings would have more season ticket holders than they've ever had before and at this point right now they are $229,000 ahead of last year's sales pace. He said the reason for this is that people who never thought they could buy season tickets are now coming in and asking for them, probably because they've heard the stories that other people are getting rid of them. Well, this kind of represents sort of a a twist in the story because now what you have is the Red Wings are seemingly being rewarded for their terrible failures of the past couple seasons. And always before, when they were successful, the fans figured, why bother trying to get seats? With the team down now, what's happening is people are figuring that, well, good seats must be available and we'll buy them up in case they ever do get good. But just remember, folks, you got Ned Harkness running the team. I will say this about Lincoln Cavallari, though. He is a very progressive guy because here's a statement he made that portends well for the future and would become the standard for future NHL arenas. Cavallari said, I'll tell you how things are going for us. We're building 40 new boxes up near the roof over the balcony. There'll be six to eight seats in a box. We haven't driven a single nail into a board of wood yet. All we have are the plans. And we've sold out every single one. Well, we have some news on uh, Joe Crozier. Remember we told you last week that the American Hockey League had, had approved a Buffalo Sabres farm team in Cincinnati. Joe, of course, going to run the team for his old buddy Punch Imlac. Well, Joe did a kind of a classy thing this week. And by the way, I got to talk to Joe Crozier a few years ago working on a project about the 1967 expansion. And that was an interesting conversation. Uh, Just as an aside, I didn't know at that time that Jack Kent Cook, while Joe was running the Rochester Americans, he flew Joe out to California to interview him for the general manager coach job of the Kings long before Red Kelly was in the picture. And Joe conferred with his buddy Imlac, who convinced him to stay in the Toronto organization. Joe this week put a nice letter to Vancouver hockey fans in both the uh, major Vancouver papers. This is what Joe wrote to the people of Vancouver. About three years ago, I came to Vancouver to run the Vancouver Canucks of the Western Hockey League. It has been a good three years, two years spent with the club, and another in radio at CJOR. The reason these years have been good is because the people of Vancouver are the greatest anywhere. I'm leaving again to take on duties with the Cincinnati Swords of the American Hockey League, but I'll be back to Vancouver one day soon, I hope. I've said goodbye to many good friends in Vancouver and to those I haven't seen. Thank you 
for everything and to the many thousands of hockey fans, thank you very much for your interest in this great sport and for the support you gave me when I was there. Vancouver is a major league city and the fans are major league fans and it's been a pleasure to have lived here and part of me will always remain. I hope to see you all again soon. Many thanks, Joe Crozier. This next story we've been following for many months. Of course, it took a rather crazy twist in recent weeks with the arrests of uh, Stafford Smythe and Harold Ballard. Well, if you remember, the original charges against Smythe and Ballard had to do with income tax evasion over a period of about five years in the late 1960s. Stafford Smythe's lawyer uh, petitioned the court that the case should be thrown out because of a Bill of Rights violation. Now remember, the Charter of Rights has not yet become law in Canada, and there was something called the Bill of Rights, and Smythe's lawyer uh, said that because of the way the case was handled, that Smythe's rights were not, Smythe was not treated the same as everyone else would be treated. Well, this was sent all the way by the uh, prosecution, the Crown, to the Supreme Court, and here's how they ruled on that particular case. The Supreme Court of Canada, and this report by Canadian Press, dismissed an appeal by Stafford Smythe uh, against trial by indictment for tax evasion. Smythe, who's 51, president of Maple Leaf Gardens, had appealed the court the Crown's procedure by indictment on the grounds that it was a violation of the Bill of Rights. His lawyer, J.J. Robinette of Toronto, argued that the procedure violates the Bill of Rights because at the whim of federal justice minister, it places the accused in jeopardy of a jail sentence. The income tax evasion uh, charges are dual procedure and the stronger uh, charge, a proceeding by way of indictment, carries a much greater penalty than the lesser charge proceeding by way of summary conviction, as they call it. Robinette argued this case and won last November before a county court judge by the name of Joseph Kelly. But in December, Chief Justice Dalton Wells of the Ontario Supreme Court overruled Judge Kelly and ordered Smythe to stand trial as he had been charged. Robinette went to the Ontario Court of Appeal, which upheld the Wells ruling. And of course, then Robinette went to the Supreme Court of Canada, which today did the very same thing. A bit of history on this for those of you who are not familiar. Smythe was charged in 1969 with evading payment of income taxes on $278,920 and of making false and deceptive statements for income tax returns from 1964 to 1967. Harold Ballard, Smythe's partner in crime, and never was a phrase so true as it was with those two, uh, he was charged under the Income Tax Act uh, with evasion of taxes on 134685 uh, and that was during about the same time. Now, the Ballard case was not directly involved in the Supreme Court appeal. Uh, it might have been affected, as would either tax case and others in history, because uh, 
of the way the Crown uh, has the summary conviction dual procedure indictment uh, process that they can follow. So his case was also put on hold until the Smythe case was resolved by the Supreme Court. And this decision means both Smythe and Ballard will have to stand trial on these income tax evasion charges, which are separate from the fraud and theft charges that were uh, caused them to be arrested in the last couple of weeks. Gary Bergman at the NHL uh, Players Association tournament this week was defending the title he won last year with Frank Mahovlich. And of course, Gary, you remember, had some problems last season, didn't everybody who played for the Red Wings. Gary clashed with his former and still, I guess, friend, Doug Barkley, who's now coach of the Red Wings. Barkley is uh, proving to be the ultimate company man. Uh, when Ned Harkness's jump Doug leaps into the air and then defies gravity until Harkness tells him that he can land. Well, Gary was uh, questioned about his feelings with the Red Wings while he was at the tournament this week. And maybe he had a couple of pops at the, the time he was talking to. But Gary was very frank and he always has been. Gary said, well, the problem in Detroit is that there are... 32 bosses working it seems at cross purposes i wouldn't mind if they hired a little caesar that is before mike illich became involved and yet gary had this very interesting phrase hire a little caesar at least gary says you'd know where you stand in detroit it's a bad scene right now Bergman says that his feeling is that Gordie Howe should, quote, go after the job. And contrary to what other people think, I believe Gordie Howe would be a great coach. It's in your corner, uh, Gordie. Would you want to take the job? Would the Red Wings do it? Would Bruce Norris put Gordie in that position? Personally, I don't think Gordie would work for Ned Harkness under any circumstances. Well, not far from Detroit is another major city, Cleveland, Ohio, on the shores of Lake Erie, across the lake from where I am. And the owner of the Cleveland professional hockey team, the Barons, and the basketball Cavaliers is Nick Maletti. And he, of course, is hoping to get a new arena built by 1972-73 that would house 19,000 people for the Cavaliers and 18,000 for the Hockey Barons. No word on who's going to pay for this, whether Maletti is putting his own money into this project or whether he's hoping the city of Cleveland will pay for it. But the rink is going to be located in suburban Richfield, which is about 20 miles outside of downtown Cleveland. And I don't know if you've been around Lake Erie winters, driving 20 miles in the middle of the winter might not be a hockey fan's idea of a good time many of those winter nights. Another one of the off-ice stories that does affect the, the sport greatly uh, was going on at this time in 1971. Uh, there's always a lot of talk right around this time about parity in the NHL since, of course, the league had expanded in 1967. Well, Jim Kearney in the Vancouver Sun explored the issue as a bill designed to improve the rights of professional athletes was being introduced in the Canadian Parliament. 
And many people said that this bill, if passed by the Canadian government, and don't forget at this time, 95% of the players in the NHL, maybe even a higher percentage, were Canadian. They said that this bill, whoever they were, would ruin professional hockey and cause an end to professional sport in general if the United States uh, adopted a similar plan. Jim Kearney wrote that the Vancouver Canucks and, in fact, all expansion hockey teams would owe a great debt of thanks to Ron Basford, the Canadian Minister of Consumer Affairs, because the bill he is about to introduce would definitely uh, cause parity to be uh, completed in the National Hockey League. Everybody would be on an equal playing field, according to Basford's bill. Now, how does this work? As Kearney writes, one of the more immediately obvious aspects of this competition bill being introduced by Basford in the Canadian House of Commons can be found in the provisions affecting sports monopolies. Hockey is the principal target, of course, of this bill in Canada. It's not surprising because the national winter pastime is the last medieval stronghold in professional sport. When the bill becomes law next year, hockey will have to replace its restrictive clause with the same sort of option clause used by professional football, and it will have to run its annual amateur draft as it was meant to be, to help the needy, not the greedy. What's happening here is that the National Hockey League Players Association is suddenly being handed a club that it never had before. And the association's executive director, Alan Eagleson, knows exactly how it's going to be wielded. Eagleson says that the players will be going after a no-strings-attached option clause, and they'll be going along with the amateur draft, but not the trading of draft choices. They want to forbid that to keep teams like Montreal Canadiens and their great general manager, Sam Pollock, from ensuring that the best players go to the best teams. That can't happen if you're going to have parity. Kearney says that the players will likely get what they want in these two areas because their wishes exactly are square with the intent of the competition bill, not to mention the wishes of the Economic Council of Canada, which wants pro sport under the Combines Act, which is sort of like the antitrust legislation in the United States for our American listeners. For the new clubs like the Vancouver Canucks, the uh, California Seals, maybe the LA Kings, etc., the shortcut to parity is being established right now by this bill. Once the option clause replaces the reserve clause, look for talented bench sitters on the good teams like Boston, Montreal, Chicago, New York. Look for them to play out their options like the football players are doing and sign with expansion teams low on talent but maybe high on cash. These guys, not only will they be able to play regularly, which they probably would never do on teams like Boston and Montreal, but they'll be able to make a lot more money. For instance, a fifth defenseman who plays only occasionally, somebody like uh, Ricky Smith of the Boston Bruins, he's worth no more than $20,000 a season to the Bruins. With the Canucks, 
He'd be 1-2 with Gary Doak as the best defender on the team, and he could likely make a lot more than thirty grand a year. Now, if the association's chief uh, concern is the economic well-being of its members, Kearney says that that's another reason it wants the trading of draft choices halted. Had this year's number one pick, Guy Lafleur, gone to Oakland as he, some say, should have, he'd have much more bargaining muscle than he will with Canadians whose need for his services is not as great. In California, he had a chance to actually make that team uh, successful as the new superstar on the block. With Montreal, in at least the first season, he's just another one of the guys and will probably be paid that way. Kearney says that if all this seems like a classic case of the union about to be in a position of telling the boss how to run his business, if that's the way you feel about this, you are exactly right. This may not be right and proper under business uh, customs, but it's pretty difficult to really drum up any sympathy for National Hockey League owners who are now crying ruin and doom of their sport and that the walls are going to come crumbling down and fans will no longer have the wonderful NHL to view on TV and listen to on radio. And even if they can manage to find tickets for these sold-out buildings, they're not going to be able to do that either, according to the NHL uh, bosses. Now, the NHL owners have to realize that Ron Bassford is going to be a formidable opponent when it comes to this issue. He actually campaigned on this issue with the National Hockey League as his target when he won his election in 1968. Now, he's become the Minister of Consumer Affairs, and they're going to have a battle if they think they can stop this from actually taking place in Canada, at least. Compromises were there to be made, but these guys don't believe that the government or anyone else can tell them how to run their businesses, even when the businesses really contravene the law and and moral turpitude as well. They're not really the things of people. It's almost like indentured slavery, what the players are these days, bound to one team for their entire life with no ability to determine their own future. Now, the clubs say that they put a lot of money into these players, but the money they realize back is what allows them to make such handsome profits. Compromises were there to be made, but the NHL owners were were blind to this and so now they may be forced to make changes that they did not want to make had they been able to compromise. Of course one of the first questions that comes to mind with this issue is the fact that 11 of the 14 National Hockey League teams operate in the United States. So Bassford isn't going to be able to inflict his option clause on just Toronto, Montreal, and Vancouver. That would never happen. But while he can't legislate against American teams, the fact that they depend almost exclusively on Canada for their player supplies suggests that they can be persuaded to get in line with the new rules. 
Well, we have another Phil Esposito story this week. This is pretty interesting. He came right through Port Colborne uh, uh, when this story was being uh, developing and what we'll tell now. And this is from uh, Barry Cardigan of the Boston Globe. Uh, Phil Esposito's always wanted to uh, be a sailor. He, he grew up in Sault Ste. Marie on the Great Lakes. I grew up in the right on the shores of Lake Erie, actually. Well, Phil, who has done about everything there is to do in hockey, embarked on the grand tour of boating. Phil captained his new 33-foot Egg Harbor cruiser out of the Neponset River on a 12-day cruise, and that's going to take him to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, where, of course, he has his permanent home. Making the trip with Esposito would require going to 38 locks of New York and Canadian canal systems and a couple of hometown pals, Los Angeles Kings defenseman Matt Ravlich and Jerry Bambuco, a teacher in that area. Uh, they're going to be along for the trip. Well, as it turned out, Phil made the trip. They went through the canal systems, drove right through Port Colburn. We happened to be around when he when he went through the Welland Canal. We're at the south end of the Welland Canal. And it was a very smooth trip for Phil and, and his friends. That is until they got up on the way to uh, Lake Superior and then Sault Ste. Marie when a storm hit. They ran into some 10-foot waves, and Phil said when they finally reached their destination that they were a little bit scared at how rough the Great Lakes can be, even in comparison to the ocean. And Phil was uh, even thought for a couple times, a couple of minutes, that they might get into more serious trouble. But the 30, uh, 33 footer, I think it is, they managed to hang in and uh, they got to Sault Ste. Marie. And Phil Esposito had quite an experience after that record setting season he had in the NHL. This was something a little more real. One of the things that I always enjoyed during. Uh, the hockey seasons and also more during the off seasons you look at the players who are playing in the league right now and you say who'd make a good coach which of these guys is going to retire and take over an NHL team well someday we figured Eddie Johnson of the Bruins would be an NHL coach maybe within 10 years we all thought Johnson is one of the sharpest hockey minds in the game and he is the Boston Bruin player, according to everybody around the team. He was more, most likely to become coach, and that is exactly what Eddie is looking for post-hockey playing days. Eddie told Francis Rose of the Boston Globe, Hockey's my life and I'm going to stay in it. I want to stay in it, and I want to coach. EJ was asked how long he thought he might uh, it might be before he starts coaching. And he said, well, I, I think I have at least five years of Major League Hockey left in me. Look at guys like Gump Worsley and Jacques Plant. They're past 40 and they're still playing well in the NHL. So I can guess I could go another five years, maybe seven. And then after that, I want to get into coaching. Jacques Plant says that EJ can play at least that long. Expansion is lengthened the careers of all the good goalers. The talent is spread around now. It's a little more thin than it used to be, so there aren't that many good players on every team. 
Uh, Plant says it was different when we had six teams. Now you don't have to work as hard for every minute of every game. The pressure can be less, and a good goalie can play for a very long time. It's all in the eyes. As long as your eyes are good, Plant says you can play for a long time in the NHL. Eddie Johnson figures that being a goalkeeper, especially with the two-goalie system now employed by all NHL teams, he figures that that's a good way to learn a lot about about the game and about coaching. Eddie says, when I'm on the bench, I don't look at the game as a fan would. Eddie says he tries to get the overall picture by looking at all the little things taking place on the ice. He says he puts the game together. Eddie says, I watch to see who's skating and who isn't on each of the teams. Now, Ed says, I'd like to think I could go into the minors and coach some young players. It would be very satisfying trying to develop a young player into a major leaguer. Sure, I'd like to coach in the NHL, but I'd like to work with the kids for a little while to get good at this. So that's this week's show, everyone. Uh, another uh, off-season uh, delve into a couple of issues a little more deeply. And what did we learn from this uh, going into July week? Well, we got the results of the NHLPA golf tournament and the accompanying hockey news that came out during the weekend. You get a lot of hockey people together and some news is going to be made. We learned that the, how the Supreme Court of Canada uh, ruled on Stafford Smythe's move to have his income tax evasion case thrown out because of the Bill of Rights challenge. And of course, what we learned is he's going to have to stand trial. And we also learned that Gary Bergman feels that Gordy Howe should coach the Red Wings, whom he describes as an all-around bad scene. We still have a little bit of news and some features that we're uh, going to have for you next week. Uh, we'll have a, a, a session on how player agents are affecting the sporting scene, especially the hockey world in 1971. We'll have some news about the possible future of Gordy Howe. Would he be playing this fall or won't he? There's some questions either way. And sports gambling seems to be an idea which might catch on in Canada, but should it? And should the government play a role? The guys who run the NHL, especially Clarence Campbell, abhor the thought of gambling creeping into the hockey business. We're going to examine that thorny issue next week as well. Andy Cole produces the 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast, and he does a downright excellent job for this. Andy's a true media professional, and I can't thank him enough for everything he does for this podcast. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto indie rock group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our introduction music. If you ever get a chance to see the RAA perform live, don't miss the opportunity. They're playing some shows we know this summer in Alberta, and we're hoping that they've got some gigs lined up in Ontario as well. Other musical pieces in the show and the sound effects are all created by Andy Cole. Our research comes from files at the Toronto Star, the Toronto Globe and Mail, and of course, the many publications found at newspapers.com. You can find us on Twitter at AdHockey50Years, on Facebook under the 50 Years Ago in Hockey banner, and at our WordPress site, 
Hockey50YearsAgo.com. Of course, we're here every week on the Hockey Podcast Network, every day on Twitter, and we're going to have a great season uh, next year, and the shows this summer are going to prepare us for next season very well. And on that note, we will see you next time. When the ice